Let's go down the hill. Okay. Hi there, Hi there listeners. listeners. Welcome, Welcome to, to Coherence. Coherence. <laughs> My name is Amanda DiBattista. And I'm Andrew Mark. Next stop, Park University Commons. Our apologies for the long delay in getting you these next episodes. We appreciate your patience and understanding. Welcome to the sixth episode of Coherence, Protest and Resistance, G20 Stories. Our creative process for this episode has been a little bit different. This is the first episode in which we've worked closely with a guest producer. Sonia Kaloran McKibben is a colleague and good friend of Andrew and I, and we'd like to welcome her to the show. Hi, Sonia. Hi. So, Sonia, maybe we can start by telling our listeners how this episode came about. Well, following the G20 summit in Toronto in June of 2010, Amanda and I had a lot of discussions about the events that took place, and she started asking a lot of questions about my own political work. And we decided that that exploration of politics and resistance could make a really interesting podcast. Since the experience of the G20 in Toronto involved everyone in the city in some way, this seemed like a great place to start a discussion about how people engage in politics and resistance in very different ways. The problem, of course, is that everyone did have an experience of the G20, and there were so many people to talk to. The thing is, even in our faculty of environmental studies at York University, there were many people who were heavily involved in the organizing that happened around the G20. In fact, I remember being on the streets during the protests with my supervisor on the phone with the associate dean of students, trying to figure out which students had been arrested. So with that in mind, we decided to speak with just three students in our faculty who had very different organizing histories, involvement in G20 planning, and experiences of the summit itself. Our aim is not to provide a definitive account of what happened at the G20, but rather to have a discussion about how and why people engage in resistance movements. We do this by weaving together personal stories and reflections from our interviewees. So Sonia will take over from here. We hope that you enjoy this episode, and as always, welcome your feedback. So I guess I should start by introducing myself. I'm a PhD student in the Faculty of Environmental Studies, and I've been involved in political organizing in one form or another for about as long as I can remember. I moved back to Toronto in late 2009, just as organizing for the G20's arrival was starting up. The G20 is a global organization of the 20 most powerful economies in the world, represented by their finance ministers and central bank governors. They have regular meetings to determine economic priorities and policies of the international financial system. Essentially, these meetings dictate global spending priorities and are forums for the interests of corporations and the implementation of cuts to social services for regular people. In 2010, the meeting's theme was Recovery and New Beginnings. It was designed to address the ongoing financial crisis experienced by wealthy countries. The priority for the meetings was supposedly to stabilize economies, but this came at the cost of public spending. Massive cuts to social programs, health, education, and more were brought in under the banner of austerity. The G20 is yet another forum for the richest and most powerful leaders to pursue their interests without public consultation and involvement. Like other trade meetings and organizations, the meetings of the G20 have sparked significant resistance because of their attacks on people in favor of business interests. In Toronto, the meetings took place on June 26th and 27th. Tens of thousands of people took to the street to protest, and the Canadian state mobilized a massive security operation to confront them. More than two years later, 
the stories continue, with people still in jail for their organizing work and trials still continuing against some of those arrested. These protests continue to take place and people continue to organize, so we decided to talk to people who had been involved in very different ways about the work they did, what the G20 meant to them, and the work they're doing moving forward. So we started by talking with a master's student from our faculty. My name is Yogi Acharya. I'm a migrant justice organizer in the city. I do work with the organization No One Is Illegal. I think I've been organizing with No One Is Illegal now since about 2009. Outside of that, I've also done a fair bit of work uh, with other organizers in the city, uh, including coalitions that have sprung up before and after the G20 around, uh, say, austerity measures or around provincial or federal legislation that has come down around crime, for example, or what, quote-unquote, crime. Um, and things like that. Yogi told me that his work with No One Is Illegal brought him to G20 organizing through a number of coalitions with other community organizations. And and those coalitions were interesting spaces because a lot of work was being coordinated through them on a city level, which was quite interesting at the time. And that's how that's partly how uh, G20 organizing came about. Is that I remember I think it was in December of 2010 is when, 2009. Uh, is when we had planned this meeting, basically calling a bunch of organizations together to figure out how are we going to respond uh, to the G20 coming into the city. Since 1999 in Seattle, summit protests have become key spaces of resistance to international trade politics and a whole host of other issues. But there is often tension between the large moments of public protest and ongoing organizing in the city. Yogi told me about some of the problems with past summit organizing. What tended to happen is that local resistance movements, which had been organizing you know, for decades before that and which would continue to do so decades after, usually tended to get their message silenced or ignored or marginalized. Um, so the conscious decision that was made at the time was that we would use the moment of the G20 when... Uh, you know, all of the press's attention would be focused on Toronto and all of the world's eyes, in a sense, would be looking at Toronto uh, to really bolster those movements that were that had been active in the city um, and to use them, to use that moment to sort of uh, politicize people about issues that are very local and issues that affect them right then and there, right? And to, and to plug people in who want to come in from outside into that organizing with that aim, local organizations coordinated days of actions around their ongoing key issues during a week of community resistance leading up to the summit. There were protests organized through the Toronto Community Mobilization Network, or TCMN, that addressed five themes, Indigenous sovereignty, economic justice, migrant justice, environmental and climate justice, and gender justice, queer and disability rights. So we decided to speak with a PhD student in the Faculty of Environmental Studies at York, who was also involved in the Toronto Community Mobilization Network and G20 organizing. Um, okay, my name is Joanna Adamiak. I got involved with the Toronto Community Mobilization Network, or I'm going to refer to it as TCMN, um, in January of 2010, and that was kind of a group that came together in order to try to mobilize the city, but also outside of the city, for the G20. Uh, and I worked on the logistics committee, which literally worked on the logistics of getting people um, in uh, into the city, but also what happened to them when they got here. So we worked on organizing convergence space, finding ways to feed people who were staying, 
um, finding places for people to stay. I was on the transportation subcommittee, so finding out buses could park, you know, helping people find hotel rooms for their bus drivers, <clears throat> that kind of stuff. Uh, trying to get bikes for people <clears throat> if they were coming in and wanted to get around the city. Uh, and I was also involved in SOAR, which is the Southern Ontario Anarchist Resistance. I can openly say that now, I guess. Um, <laughs> yay! Um, and that was a group of, a bunch of people for, who identified as anarchists from Southern Ontario. Um, and we were working on planning three marches, or three demonstrations, I guess. Um, and the one that I was part of was one that was going to happen on the 26th of June, and it was going to be a march to the fence. Uh, called Get Off the Fence. Before the G20, in June of 2010, a multi-million dollar, multi-layered steel mesh and concrete fence that stretched for three and a half kilometers through downtown Toronto was erected. The three-meter-high fence bounded an area that stretched from Spadina Avenue in the west to Yonge Street in the east, from King Street in the north to Lakeshore Boulevard in the south. I asked Joanna to tell me more about the Get Off the Fence march. I mean, I don't know what happened at the Get Off the Fence, but um, I was arrested before it happened. Yeah. But um, basically, there was a there was a like a very public march. It was called the People's First March that was going to be happening on the Saturday, and it was going to be marching in a circle with uh, police escorts. And um, a lot of us felt that there wasn't really a good avenue for people to do something other than kind of walk around in a circle. I mean, this, this, the imagery of this fence was really offensive to a lot of people. And I mean, people in the city who didn't have necessarily radical or political thoughts about this were, you know, offended that they had to give up their city for a meeting of, you know, 20, uh, 20 world leaders. And so I think that the thought of marching away from the fence for the majority of the march, or not even trying to get to it, was like... Uh, it was really problematic, um, mm-hmm. and so we decided to organize a march that would obviously also march because it was the, the people's first march, was labor march. So we wanted to organize a march that was obviously in solidarity with labor, but also that would not just turn around. So I think we were hoping that for anybody who didn't just want to turn around, they could join like an anti-capitalist, anti-colonial group of people who wanted to go to the fence, and uh, so we kind of tried to plan a march that would work its way toward the fence with no real intention of um, what would happen. I think it was just the fence was a symbol of the state and we wanted to see it, right? And so that was the that was the intention to kind of start with labor and then kind of snake away towards the towards the, the fence. In April 2001, Canada hosted the Summit of the Americas in Quebec City. In response to growing demonstrations at international summits and the past successes of protesters at disrupting meetings, the government decided to erect a fence around parts of downtown Quebec to shield government officials from protesters. Since that time, fences have become all too common at summits and have become a powerful symbol of the way that these meetings only respond to the interests of the elite. They have come to be important in and of themselves, and at the G20 in Toronto, police were deployed solely to protect the fence, rather than the fence serving to reduce the numbers of police needed. These fences demonstrate the trend of increasing securitization of political processes and the criminalization of dissent. Organizers and protesters have developed different strategies for dealing with this level of protest security. In Toronto, the Movement Defense Committee set up teams of legal observers to support people who came into contact with police during the summit. I talked to Catherine. My name is Catherine Adibel, a PhD student in FES who had volunteered as a legal observer and asked her why she got involved. So I knew that the G20 was coming. 
Um, there had been a lot of meetings and notices about that. And I knew that I wanted to get involved, but um, my interest was sort of more on making sure that those people who wanted to protest and be out in the streets were supported and protected in the best way that they could be. Because I didn't really feel that I was that knowledgeable at the time about all of the sort of discourse and arguments about, um, you know, the problems with uh, global capitalism um, and all that. So I didn't feel, you know, an expert enough really on the topic to be necessarily um, one of the people who are protesting, but I did definitely support what people were doing. So I thought um, that the best way that I could um, be involved was doing legal observing, and I went to one of the meetings um, for the planning uh, of the protests, and I heard there was an opportunity to do legal observing, and that sounded really interesting to me um, because it was really like exactly what I want to do. So you could kind of support people who were out there who felt passionately about um, this and to try to, you know, and what I felt passionately about was that people have the right to protest and have the right to be out on the street for whatever the issue is that they're that they uh, that they want to protest. So that's where I came at it. So I went to the training with the um, MDC, which is the um, Movement Defense Committee, and uh, I got trained. And then then I had my orange hat and notebook, and there I was. <laughs> I asked Catherine to explain what legal observing is. Legal observing is when volunteers, they could be lawyers themselves or law students or anyone really, um, um, goes out into the street alongside um, protesters and their job is to basically um, be there to document how um, the protesters are treated by the police. Um, so you take lots of notes about what's happening. Um, so documenting the interaction between the police and the protesters. And then if people do get arrested to document that information and track arrests and then link the people up, um, with, um, lawyers who've volunteered to, um, defend people for free. The week of action culminated in a large march called justice for our communities. Catherine was there and documented one of the first arrests. There was um, a man who uh, was deaf, and um, he, um, I mean, what I saw was that it appeared to me that he just wanted to kind of cross, um, you know, or, or get into the, the area where the march was happening, and the police had set up sort of a line, and, and um, I think he was told not to enter that area, but obviously he was deaf, so that uh, information is something he didn't hear, um, and then he was tackled to the ground, and it got really kind of crazy, and then lots of police on him, and lots of police pushing everyone else back, and that was sort of like an immediate kind of, you know, intense situation from a just stressful situation, because the police were then sort of showing more, like, force, and were, um, you know, looking a bit more organized and aggressive, um, but that quickly escalated into what I thought was kind of a shocking uh, way that someone was being treated by the police. Little did I know that was going to be pale in comparison to future events. On Saturday, June 26th, the People's First March and the Get Off the Fence March that Joanna had told us about brought thousands of people into the city to oppose the G20 and to bring attention to a wide variety of issues, including women's health, social service cutbacks, and labor issues. But when the the get-off-the-fence march tried to turn towards the fence, they were blocked by the police. So then that Saturday, um, things started to get a little bit crazy. So I wound up in at Queen and Spadina, and um, uh, people wanted, I believe, people wanted to walk south, further south on Spadina, but there was a line of police there and we're not being allowed to go past that intersection. Um, so that was kind of intense because there was, you know, when you kind of like push up against a wall and you're not able to, to walk anymore, that's just naturally kind of a intense situation. And then it got more intense too, because then the police at some point put on their gas mask and there was this sort of like ripple of, you know, it's going to be like gas, you know, people need to prepare themselves for however they can. So at the time I like take my contact lenses out cause I'd heard that was dangerous and I had my glasses. And so, um, cause I was, you know, a little bit, I wanted to stay and, but I wanted to, you know, not go blind also. So somewhere on Queen and Spadina are two of my contact lenses. So, um, 
then uh, some of the marchers who were not allowed to continue southward, um, the, the regular, I guess, march continued north, and um, other people decided to go different directions. So my partner and I, um, you know, at that point, we sort of had to kind of make decisions on the fly, like where would we be most needed? Um, the job is to stick with people who might need legal observing in, in the case they um, have interactions with the police. Um, so we followed um, a group of people who were in um, uh, dressed in all black and running. And so we ran with them and we're trying to kind of be uh, around in case they were going to be facing any kind of police interaction. There were some incidents of property destruction that we saw, but there was a very uh, surprising to me a lack of police involvement. And this is where sort of my naivete started to kind of, I guess, have to be kind of ebbed or ripped away a little bit. Um, you know, because just being who I was, you know, and never having had any experience with protest situations really or with police personally, um, I didn't, in my mind, it was just like, oh, well, when there's stuff that could be defined as a crime, then there's police who would want to be there, I guess. You know, in my mind, it was just like, oh, it's surprising that they've seen so many police officers everywhere I've been at these rather benign events or just marches that are just, you know, like little kids and, and, and old people, you know, like walking around and there's tons of police. Why aren't there police here? It was kind of going through my mind as a surprising and I don't really have the answer to that question I think a lot of people have wondered that and have come up with various ideas as to why that was and I don't know what the answer is but it was odd to me that that was that there was surprisingly lack of police yeah given the numbers on the street yeah yeah and and given that I thought you know maybe police would be more concerned about windows being broken versus just people walking but that was not yeah. proven From there, Catherine and her partner turned to Queen's Park, where the thousands of participants in the People's First March had ended up. In the days leading up to the summit, Queen's Park had been deemed a designated protest zone, where the police said people could voice their concerns about the summit. So we got in to um, Queen's Park, and, um, and then my sense of time off the top of my head isn't that great, but it seemed like a quite a, a while that people were sort of chill, and there was lots of, like... I don't know, like hippie looking people just sitting and, you know, like people meditating and people just like, you know, even right there at the very front where the police were then standing. And the police at that point had a really kind of nice, chilled out, you know, rapport with the, the people that were there. There was a lot of, you know, chatting and like even like flirtation, I would say, between, you know, some protesters and the police officers. And, and, it, and, you know, I was just kind of like, oh, this is easy, you know, not really much to say. You know, I'd write that, you know, how many police there were and what was happening. There wasn't a lot to do. And that's why it was so bizarre that it seemed there was no announcement to the crowd that I heard um, that anything had changed, that, that, that being there was not okay anymore. Um, putting aside the fact that obviously anyone should be able to be there as long as they want. Um, but there was no announcement. There was a changing of, of the police officers. I did notice. Um, I'm not sure from what to what, um, but there were different officers there. And then literally from where my perspective, at least without any warning or anything like that, all of a sudden the police just started moving up there. And I'm sure there's a name for this technique, but like four or five of them march up and then they part open and one officer or two officers darts out from behind that police line. That's, uh, it's moving forward and just grabs whoever it is they can grab and drags them behind those officers who then close ranks again and arrest that person. And this is how they apparently decided that they were going to clear the park. And that was the thing that was, I think, one of the most, when I think back, one of the most shocking things is like, and I've said this before, is like the, the randomness of it. You know, like it was, there's no, there was no reason why anybody got arrested versus anyone else got arrested other than the fact that you weren't quick enough or you were too close to that officer who was going to run at that second. And it was just incredibly random. Well, I guess not random. If you were less able-bodied, that would increase your chances of being caught. But, you know, there was, it just seemed wrong that that was the only distinguishing factor between me who wasn't arrested because I was nimble and darting around and other people. 
and I just thought that was really wrong. You know, I know that sounds really like innocent, but I just (laughs) really bothered me that, that that was, and it really shattered notions of like, because I not I wouldn't say that I was I I mean I I had I wasn't pro police for sure but I wasn't anti police I would say at that point I think I was just like ambivalent about police and I didn't think that and in my mind like what happened was that you know people who did something or were thought at least thought to have done something were those that would be targeted by police but this proved that to be utterly false it was just anyone who randomly yeah. got caught would therefore suddenly had an entirely different in several 24 hours than I had. And that's just really wrong. While it's hard to say how many people were arrested on the Saturday of the G20, this was about the midway point in the arrest of 1,100 people, the largest mass arrest in Canadian history. On the Saturday, the police introduced their tactic of kettling by surrounding hundreds of people on the Esplanade and arresting them. This orchestrated police action and the number and brutality of arrests led to a late-night support rally in front of the temporary detention centre that had been set up on Eastern Avenue, in the east end of Toronto. This rally ended in another mass arrest of supporters. Another rally was called in front of the detention centre on Eastern Avenue on Sunday, June 27th. So on Sunday there was a rally, a march to the detention centre, um again in the morning um, because people were being let out and so I think it had well it served a couple purposes and one was to try to people there was food there and like cigarettes and some money for for people to take TTC or a cab so as people were getting released you know they these poor people were like coming out you know didn't know where they were (laughs) yeah I mean just gone through this crazy ordeal um so people wanted to be there to, to provide them with whatever could be provided and then it was also like a rally to just be like this is like fucking ridiculous you have you know people locked up for hours and hours without access to and that was the other thing too i heard that you know the lawyers weren't able to really like get access to the people as they were supposed to be able to be given access anyway um so we were at this rally and then you know it was it was boisterous and there was music and i think like electric guitar which i was actually impressed with (laughs) um and that was that was good and then all of a sudden out again this is similar to there's like a theme you know it's similar to at queen's park so out of nowhere comes this unmarked van that like screeches to a stop and the sliding door opens and several men undercover police officers apparently but at the time you couldn't have really been sure what the hell was happening you know come barreling out of this van and into the crowd of people clearly they've got their eyes set on on some people and like tackle uh this one guy and this one woman and like just giant men on these people and like throw them literally into the van close the van and then speed off again and that was like I didn't think that happened other than in the movies you know it was just and it was totally wrong like that shouldn't happen you shouldn't be at a place where you're allowed to be and then be threatened by unknown elements of which apparently which were the police but like i don't know like you don't even know what's going on and the, the the use of force on people who are clearly not like physical threats in any way i found to be shocking you know the people who got arrested over and over again that i saw were like tackled to the ground and dragged by several people and that again happened at the at that event there so yeah That was Sunday. Sunday was a turning point, and really the start of a massive police crackdown on any form of protest in the city. Police raided the Toronto Community Mobilization Network's community space in Parkdale and kettled over 100 people, including passers-by, for hours at Queen and Spadina in the pouring rain. These actions followed targeted arrests of community organizers prior to the start of the summit. I'd asked Yogi, as a community organizer and member of TCMN, to talk about the need for safety and his experience of police repression around the G20. In in the months leading up to it, we knew people uh, and community organizers who had been very vocal or who were sort of well-known were being followed. This was sort of general information that... Um, we had we had reasonable suspicion to believe that our emails were probably being tapped, so with our cell phones and text messages and um, so on and so forth. So that created a fair amount of uh, fear, I guess, and intimidation, uh, which was the precise aim of what they were trying to do with the billion-dollar security apparatus that they were, had implemented, I guess, um, in the lead-up to the G20. 
but despite that, people organized uh, and people mobilized and people kept doing what they were doing. Yeah, yep. You heard that right. A billion dollars. The G20 brought huge security measures to Toronto. Some of them have had a lasting impact. So these things had become fairly common back then. Police had used that moment of the G20 to also install various security cameras. The security fence by that point had gone up. Uh, They had the, you know, security had been increasing. Uh, There were increasing attacks on homeless folks in the months leading up to the G20 when more and more police started coming in because they were trying to, quote-unquote, cleanse the downtown of poor people uh, and homeless folks. Um, so that kind of repression had already started in the months leading up to it. During the week of, uh, the, the, when it really started to go down, I feel, was on the 25th, which was um, the Community Day of Action, which was one of the largest uh, marches outside of the Labor March. Um, and, and that happened on June 25th, which was a Friday. Um, that big march ended up in a tent city at Allen Gardens. And the next morning, I remember sleeping over at uh, in Allen Gardens. And then around uh, 6 a.m., I remember I went with a friend of mine to uh, another friend's apartment, which happened to be across from Allen Gardens in one of those apartment buildings. Uh, we I remember sleeping there uh, for about an hour and then come, coming back only to find out that people had been picked up that night at 4 a.m. in the morning where police had kicked in the doors of uh, at least four G20 or four organized community organizers in the city and arrested them at gunpoint. Um, Shortly after, uh, two organizers from No One Is Illegal were picked up uh, outside of Allen Gardens when police basically uh, snatched people and put them into police vans and drove, drove off with them. One of the organizers was taken into prison. The other one was driven around the city for about an hour and then just let go. Um... So by that point, like fear had really started to seep in, I think, among a lot of people. Uh, like by that point, a lot of us had stopped walking uh, alone. A lot of us you know, chose to walk in pairs just because the, the threat of attack and the threat of um, arrest was very real, I think, by that point. Joanna had her own experience of the police raids on community organizers. She remembers... At about 5.30 in the morning, getting a call on my cell phone <clears throat> from... David, who ended up being one of my co-accused later on, um, saying, I don't know how to tell you this, but Peter um, uh, was just, we just got raided and Peter got taken away by the police. He just got arrested. And I was like, what? And these, that house that they were all staying at was about two streets over from our house. Uh, and so I kind of woke up in a panic and I said, what? And he's like, and I don't know how to tell you this, but I saw your name on a list of arrest warrants. So, <clears throat> I mean... When you do any kind of political work and any kind of organizing, you and you are perceived as having some kind of knowledge about a certain aspect of that organizing, there is always that threat of the police deciding to arrest you. And I think at the time I thought, okay, they're coming for us, and they're coming for us because they want us. They want us away for the weekend. They're going to, you know, lock us up for a couple of days so that we don't cause any trouble, and then. <laughs> Um, to let us go. And so I think there was like a bit of panic. I mean, I had gotten two and a half hours of sleep and it was 5.30 in the morning. So part of it was also just the shock of getting woken up. But um, yeah, so we called the Movement Defense Committee, which is like a, a group that helps people who get arrested get a lawyer and um, just make sure that when they get through the system, they get through the system properly. Uh, and they got us in touch with a lawyer <clears throat> who ended up being my lawyer, Howard Morton. And he called the police and said, you know, is there... And Terrence was with me, and we, at some point in those few hours, found out that there was also a warrant for Terrence's arrest. Um, and so he found out there, that it was, in fact, true, and we turned ourselves in. So this was, Jan- this was June 26th in the morning at, like, 10 o'clock. We turned ourselves in uh, to 14th Division. And then... Um, it was all very respectful, right? Like, you walk, in, you walk in and say, I'd like to turn myself in. And so they just kind of put handcuffs on you, and you sit there and while they do their paperwork. And then they put us in a paddy wagon, and we were transferred to Eastern Avenue, where they were keeping all of the G20 um, RSTs. And, I mean, it was so early, and there were, had been so few arrests until that point that people still weren't sure how to do things. And when we were at 14th Division, they were like, where are we taking them? Like, are they going up to Finch Court, which is where all the court, like, bail hearings were supposed to be? It was all this kind of a mess of confusion. Uh, so, I mean, by that time, 
nothing had happened. And I mean, nothing had happened. There had been a lot of demonstrations, but all of the like, all of the very scandalous photos that were being played by the media later on that night, as far as I understand, hadn't nothing had started yet. Mm-hmm. So it was a very quiet morning on us. It was a very quiet Saturday morning that we uh, turned ourselves <laughs> in. Um, yeah. Joanna was taken from 14th Division to the detention center on Eastern Avenue. There she was held in a makeshift cell, a cage, really, among the many that lined the converted film studio. She told us about her questioning there. Well, actually, I found at Eastern Eastern Ave that there were riots in the streets, quote-unquote, and that there there was definitely uh, a change in the tone in the streets. Um, I was questioned about whether I knew how to stop it by two undercover police officers. Um, yeah, it was a very short. I mean, they didn't interrogate me. They just put me in a room and said, "I hope you know that we're under, we're like we're not we're not you know priests or anything. We're undercovers." And I said, "Okay." And then they said, "Can you tell us anything anything to stop the riots in the streets?" And I was like, and at that moment, I hadn't heard that there were riots in the streets. So I was like, "Um, what?" And then I was like, I'm, "I've been told by my lawyer not to say anything," which is what everybody should always say um, but I also kind of felt like I was like what can I possibly tell you to stop riots like if I had that kind of power right like the code word is <laughs> I believe it was on Saturday night there was a um there was a vigil at the detention center, which was over kind of far, um, from, at least from where Avenue. I live, yeah, on Eastern Avenue. Um, and so there was a message out for, you know, if there were people who were going to be there and kind of rallying um, outside of the detention center. So if legal observers were available to go, you know, go and, and show up there. So I had my bike and um, I was at home and, and, and I decided, you know, I ate something and decided I'd go back out. So I got on my bike and I one of the most surreal um, times of the entire weekend. I have to say, even more surreal than what I saw with the police was biking on a Saturday night, like through like Little Italy and like all these places, like other parts of the city where people were just doing normal Saturday night stuff, like dressed in, you know, nice clothes and sitting outside in cafes and eating food and drinking wine. <laughs> and I'm just like biking through all of this and I'm just. It was, it was, I couldn't understand it. It was like two worlds. Like they weren't overlapped in any way. I'm like, how are you people here? Yeah. Like, how are you sitting here and doing normal Saturday night stuff when all of this craziness just went down and is still going down? Mm-hmm. But yeah, I will never forget how bizarre just like, cause I had felt so like changed and altered and like shocked about everything that had happened during the day. And I didn't understand how everyone else in the city was still, I mean, it was on the news, it was all. It was out there things. backyard, you know? Like, I don't understand how they were still just doing their regular stuff that had yeah. planned and how there could be a city. In, in one city, there could be these two realities. It was just very weird. The story continued in the weeks following. Different experiences of what happened during the G20 summit played out in media outlets and newspapers in the weeks following. While the major media outlets looped dramatic footage of burning police cars, Independent media was increasingly critical of the police tactics used during the summit. As stories of police violence and illegal actions surfaced, people began to question both the validity of such police strategies and the excessive cost of the security measures. In spite of this mounting criticism, arrests of community organizers and protesters continued for months afterwards, with most wanted lists published weekly by Toronto Police. For the 300 people facing charges, the experience of the G20 continued for months and in some cases even years. What also became clear was that police investigations long predated the summit in Toronto. And then we were finally told at the courthouse that there had been a two-year investigation. There had been two implanted undercovers, um, that they had collected information for years, that they had hours of, um, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pages of police reports, hours of surveillance, um, that this conspiracy, these conspiracy charges were ones that were, like, rooted in, like, a two-year process of people meeting and talking. Um... And that was not what I thought, you know. I mean, like I said, I thought they were keeping us for the weekend. Um, and now it turned out that 
we were actually facing uh, charges that could see us away. If they wanted to go with to the maximum time, we could have been held for 10 to 14 years in oh jail. I asked Joanna what she was charged with. Uh, I was charged with three things. Conspiracy to commit mischief over 5,000. So that's like anything from like any kind of property damage or um, interference with property is considered anything. If you keep somebody from enjoying property, then you're committing mischief. Um, uh, conspiracy to obstruct police and conspiracy to assault police. And so each of those conspiracy, which is the charge of planning and agreeing to commit crimes, carries the same sentence as committing those crimes. I mean, this is the thing about conspiracy, is that um, the what you need to prove a conspiracy is agreement, but you can proceed with as little as, an, as perceived intention. So we're getting into the realm of, we perceive that you would probably agree if you wanted to, um, if you were thinking about it. And so the Crown suggested that the TCMN and SORB meetings were a place where people came together and conspired to commit these crimes. So they, they suggested that we got together and, I mean, we were operating on consensus decision-making structures and so they suggested that any time, basically any time somebody in a room gave an idea or brainstormed or just said something that was a half joke, they, they were going to use that to show a common intent and that the common intent was violent. So the common intent of not liking police became the common intent of desiring to harm them or you know, the common intent of being opposed to private property or being opposed to the fence being up was then perceived as intending to tear it down or intending to cause damage. Um, so, I mean, we were planning a march and what essentially happened was we were then told that we were, we were accountable for what happened at that march because we planned it. That's what the suggestion was, that we intended for people to come and use that march as a place to to assault police and to damage property. Um, which is a really interesting thing about the law, right? Because you're individually accountable, except when you're individually accountable for other people's actions or other people's intentions. Um, but that was the, the case was that we were... We were the orchestrators of what happened on the weekend of the G20, hence the, like the ringleader status and that we had these people enact these crimes um, at our behest or whatever. And I think that that is also really scary that a conversation about um, even a desire is can be considered um, a crime because that really goes into the realm of thought crime for me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and conspiracy and counseling are, are both charges that have are, have a lot of case law behind them that do support um, really comment making to be cons- to be a crime. I mean, and it's often tacked on to something so if they can't really prove that you did something, they'll tack on counseling or conspiracy because it requires such a, such a lower level of, of proof. They don't, need a, they don't need a smoking gun, they don't need, you know, um, any material proof. Just recording of a conversation or somebody saying they heard you say it the, the the kind of example i always give people is you know the difference between you know if, if we sat here today and said okay we're gonna go blow, blow bubbles in the street obviously blowing bubbles is not illegal so let's whatever um we're gonna go bubbles in the street you go buy bubble solution you bring the wands i'm gonna go make sure that we have we have red t-shirts that we can all wear let's meet at noon tomorrow and do this um that would be definitely a conspiracy right but and I'm not saying that that's acceptable. That's already a problematic thing. Yeah. And furthermore, if you if you called me to, the, tomorrow at ten and said I don't want to do this anymore, and you were like, Yeah, I'm out. Too late. We've already conspired. Really? Yes. Oh. You don't have to in any way enact the crime. The crime is in the agreement. But this was about you saying like, oh, I'd love to blow bubbles in the street, you know? And Sonia being like, Yeah. Or maybe we could like throw paper cranes around, you know? I mean, this is what. This is what 
was that what was happening, but also that that carries the same weight as us actually enacting those things. Joanna was one of 17 people charged with conspiracy, among other charges, based on a two-year undercover operation in which officers Bindo Schoen and Brenda Carey were embedded in community organizations. These officers attended community meetings, worked and lived with the community organizers they were investigating, and provided notes and personal accounts of what they observed. As Bindo Schoen testified, he went in looking for criminal activity, and that's what he recorded. So the personal accounts provided to the Crown by the undercover officers were often misleading or lacking in important contextual information. Joanna described reading Brenda's notes before the trial. Reading over the notes of a meeting that I attended, again, the context is different, the tone is different. Two words switch around, change what was actually said. Yeah. Um, and it might be a memory thing. I mean, she went, she was in character for 14 hours a day, and then she would go home and write notes and meet with somebody and tell them what, what was heard. So, I mean human error is probably as at fault as the intention to find something. I mean, I think like with, as a researcher, it comes up as well, right? Like as an academic, you go into a community and you're like, all these people are anarchists or whatever. And you're like, yeah, they are. Look, I'm seeing it everywhere. So I think, you know, some projection and self-fulfilling prophecy is kind of uh, prevalent in any work that you do. Um, Unfortunately, this one is about finding people culpable of a crime. For both Joanna and Catherine, their experience of the G20 has had a profound impact on their lives. Joanna lived for 18 months under strict bail conditions until her charges were completely dropped. The 17 co-accused, of which she was one, negotiated a plea deal with the Crown that saw six of them plead guilty to conspiracy and received jail sentences of between 3 and 16 months. We talked to Joanna just days after her charges were dropped. Following her experience as a legal observer, Catherine switched from working on her PhD in the Faculty of Environmental Studies to the pursuit of a law degree where she thought she could better use the law as a tool to support people in their organizing. We first asked them to tell us about how their experiences had changed their outlook on organizing and resistance. Well, I feel even more strongly about people's rights to protest um, than I did at the time. And at the time, I felt pretty strongly about that. Um, but yeah, now I feel even more strongly that there has that that people have to be able to protest and have to be able to be on the street. Not even protesting; people have to have the, have the right to be out and doing whatever they want to do in public because that's like essential to you know. I don't even want to say democracy. That's just essential to like being a human being. Um, so I feel even more strongly about that and I feel incredibly skeptical and uh, a lot of animosity in general towards police officers and I don't view them, you know, with ambivalence anymore. I view them with skepticism when I, when I come across police officers. Um, and, uh, so that's been a big change is that I, I have, yes, great skepticism around police officers and then extending that to, you know, those people who are in charge of the police officers as well. So, you know, choices that are made by government officials on what they think is acceptable or what is not acceptable forms of protest. Um, I am very critical of as an anarchist. I definitely have always had the understanding that it's not about doing something right or wrong. It's about whether the state sees you as a threat or if the state just sees you as a nuisance. Um, or if, you're, if their order is um, questioned. And so I think that I've always known that it's not because, like, illegal versus legal is not actually the question because it's whether it's bothersome to the state or not. And, I mean, this is where, I, where my respect for a diversity of tactics comes in. I think that to argue that only nonviolent protest is the way, is the way to proceed um, muddies the water of what, um, what the state, how the state reacts to anyone who dissents. Um, and also that there are that like if people in positions of power are not just going to give it up because you ask and so there have to be different ways of confronting that um and 
I myself am, am in a position of a lot of privilege. I mean, I'm I'm white. Uh, I grew up in Europe and North America. Um, I've been educated. I have parents who are educated. Um, I'm straight, so I feel like I have a lot of privileges, and therefore, I don't. It's not for me to say how other people can respond to the to the oppression that they felt and the repression that they felt, because I have to, to the most to most extent of my life been treated. Um, well, <laughs> well, sorry, no, scratch that. I haven't, I haven't been, I've fit, I've fit the mold that the state has constructed for us to be orderly citizens. And so I haven't had to deal with daily encounters with um, oppression and discrimination simply for being a particular person or being in a particular context. And so how other people respond to that repression, who am I to say? You know, no, no, just just sit here quietly. They'll go away. I mean, there are people who have the police coming into their communities every day who find, you know, a young man of color between the ages of 16 and 20 um, dead on the street on a, on a regular basis. And so for them, this idea of this, like, legitimate peaceful protest is not... It doesn't stand. It doesn't make sense, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I think... The thing that I'm grateful for, if I can use that word, is that I think the G20 made a lot of people think through this idea of what, where the line is. I think, unfortunately, the media picked up on the police being incredibly um, oppressive to people who fat, fit that stereotype of like the good person, and so that didn't necessarily muddy the water enough for people. Like, I was just walking down the street and they arrested me. Oh, those they're jerks. But you know, what about like? So is it okay for them to take somebody who did smash a window behind a store and, like, beat them senseless? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, there's this kind of distinction of, well, I didn't do anything, so they shouldn't have beat me senseless, but this person did, so, yeah, you know, free range. Um, but I think there's definitely an awareness and a radicalization of some people and a politicization of people that I think is really important um, because I think most of us don't have to encounter that if we don't want to on a daily basis. And um, and then in after all of that... Um, after the the summit, I um, got very involved with the post sort of G20 fallout kind of organizing. So helping with like the um, legal defense of people, you know, trying to provide court support and solidarity for people. And then in addition, I got involved with OCAP as well, the Ontario Coalition Against Poverty. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I didn't, I don't know why. I just, I needed to do more, I guess. You know, like it kind of made me realize that, and I think I got involved with OCAP because I particularly, I mean, the issues are incredibly important, you know, like um, economic injustice and um, organizing, you know, communities uh, against austerity measures and all of that stuff is incredibly important. But all, in particular, I, I like their methods that they use. I think that, um, I have a much greater respect for for direct action methods um, that organizations employ because I really do think that that's the only seeing now like how much um, how messed up the system is. I kind of realize that that's probably the only way there'll be change is that there has to be serious serious action taken to get any serious change. I feel like people often talk about the protest as this kind of um, performance and that the, the riot police and the protesters perform a particular thing at demonstrations, especially at summits. And then it turns into this kind of theater. Um, I don't fully agree with that. I think that there is something really important um, and empowering that comes out of coming together with a lot of people and making, um, like, and dissenting together. But I also recognize that, um, you know, if we had gotten to that fence, we would be standing at the fence and that would be the end. Or in Quebec City, when they tore down the fence, people stood there and said, well, now what? <laughs> right? Because um, protest in and of itself isn't enough. Like, you can't just go and protest because those leaders are still going to meet every six months and make decisions. And so that's one way to engage them, but it can't be the only way that we engage them. Many people probably would say that there's problems in the world and that we should do things to fix them. Um, but I, after, I don't know, after the experience of seeing like how the state and how the police and how authority figures can, at the flip of a switch, just do whatever they want, it seems, um, that reforming a system like that, I don't think is 
the right approach because I don't think a system like that really can be is going to be receptive to reform in yeah. any substantial way. And I think before that, I wouldn't have felt that way. I would have thought the way to fix problems is to reform systems that have problems should be reformed and we should work within that existing reality that we all have and system that we all live in and we should try to work hard towards that. We then asked Joanna and Catherine what their experience of the G20 meant for their own organizing work. But then after seeing all of this bullshit and all of this abuse of power and abuse of authority and violence, I no longer think that reform is going to be achieving any significant change. So I think that when I say direct action, I guess, you know, um, tactics or techniques that don't seek to try to reform a system but seek to challenge the system and seek to expose um the realities of a, of a certain system to you know show that to the to the broader world um is the only way i think to kind of take on these types of problems it's it's, it's been strange because the day before our charges were withdrawn there were two cars in front of our house with men sitting in there reading their clipboards so i can only assume i know who they were but um and the next day we went to like there was a demonstration organized um, that we could finally attend after no protest condition for 18 months. And, um, you know, two things became really clear. Um, one, that just because our charges are withdrawn doesn't mean that we're not, not still on their radar and we'll probably be the people they come to if something happens because now they have, you know, a file and an address. Um, but, I mean... I'm as angry as ever, and so I feel like I need to do even more work than I was doing before. But there's also this awareness that um, we are on the radar in a way that maybe we weren't before. Um, so, I mean, I'm definitely committed to building communities still and doing a lot of work. Um, but I also kind of wonder what kind of what kind of work I'm I'm going to be involved in, like how I'm gonna participate in the next large um thing that comes through town, if you will, that's uh that needs to be opposed. I mean I guess I'm kind of at a loss. Uh there is this concept in sociology called like moral shock, which is I think is what I experienced in the G20, which is when like you kind of have like a certain worldview that you go into a situation with and then something happens and you get this moral shock moment where you just kind of realize that a lot of your preconceived notions are false and that um, things aren't really as you thought they were. Um, and I know that sounds really dramatic, but it really was a dramatic thing for me because and I didn't even put myself in a classification of like super naive people, you know, like yeah. living, I didn't yeah. live this incredibly sheltered life, but nonetheless I had like bought into a lot of just the stuff that's out there about how society operates and works and how it should operate and work. So unknowingly I kind of, and I, of course I still have a lot of growing to do, but it was definitely a moral shock moment when I saw how the police and how the government and how authority in general can does not have to follow any sort of rule if it doesn't want to. And I feel like our our case was interesting, but I mean, there are, you know, there are still these, there are still people who have these kind of, like these kind of private hearings um, that are just, that are considered dangerous because they're uh, people of color and they come from the Middle East originally, or their parents do. Um and so they're, you know, kind of being monitored for terrorism because they fit they fit the bill. They went to Pakistan. What what could they possibly been be doing there except, you know, supporting um, terrorist organizations? Um, and I feel like that's a really important thing for a lot of people to think to, through. I think you know, um, this process was really difficult, and I'm not downplaying it, but um, 
it's there was definitely there's definitely been this kind of feeling throughout um, in different conversations with people of like the the knowledge that some people sort of choose to encounter the police because they don't feel that they're legitimate. And then there's some people who are forced into an encounter with the police on a daily basis. I kind of like think about it in, a, in my mind as like the image of like the curtain being pushed back just like a tiny bit. And like you see a little bit more about like what the actual bullshit that's going on all the times behind the scenes or not seen to me maybe, um, but it's always out there and happening. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cause that is important. Cause, and for a while there, you know, when personally, you know, that first you experience like this kind of crazy situation that you've never experienced before, you can just stop at that point and be like, Oh my God, that was crazy. And, um, that happened to me and, you know, I was scared and I had to run. And then for like two days after, you know, I would jump when I heard like a loud bang, but then you have to stop and be like, well, okay. And then in two days I was fine. You know, I yeah. wasn't, you know, having my little like symptoms of, you know, being freaked out. And then you realize like, yeah, how there's like communities forget about in the, you know, in North America, like all of the world that are dealing with like way more terrible things on a regular basis. Um, so yeah, I think it's really important to channel that into broader work. I met this one woman at Vanier when I was held at Vanier for 20 days and she was like, why, why would you do this? Like, why would you protest if you know you're going to get arrested? Like, you know, like we, I just got picked up on the street because I live in the wrong part of the city, but and I mean, there's this kind of like understanding of like choosing to engage versus not. And so then I feel like it's one of the reasons why I believe that the work we're doing is the work we're doing. And I'm not saying we for anyone in particular. I'm, the work I'm doing is that um, I can't sit around and watch the state continue to oppress people in a particular way and just sit back like there. I it's it's like it's a, it's oppressive to me, but it's also. Um, oppressive to a lot of people that I stand in solidarity with and so being um, participating in trying to change that oppression is really important I guess mm-hmm. um, yeah Joanna and Catherine had both indicated that moving forward with continued resistance would be essential to their lives. They both talked about the importance of protest movements turning into long-term resistance strategies. We asked Yogi about his thoughts on what that ongoing resistance might look like. I think people know what the problems are for the most part. People know that there are people in this world who have far too much wealth and they're ripping most of the other people off. People have a very real sense of anger at the way the system is uh, turning their realities to be, right? Because a lot of people are, you know, the gap between the rich and the poor keeps increasing. Uh, We see increasing environmental destruction around us. Uh, And I think people realize that. And people want to sort of um, express that anger. And people are trying to find avenues to express that anger. So I think one of my primary motivations has been building that resistance and I think building uh, that resistance not just in isolated small pockets of uh, you know say migrant justice organizing or anti-poverty organizing but I feel a resistance that is more broad and that can uh, tackle problems in a more sort of holistic sense I guess where we're not um, constantly compartmentalizing ourselves but actually thinking of ourselves as this uh, joint joint collective force like i think we've we've got to build what i've heard being called uh, as like this culture uh, of resistance right where we where we say that resistance is not just something you do it's just not just something you do out in the streets it's something you do at every step of the way and every aspect of your life right so if you're at work what does subversion look like in the context of uh, work if you are uh, in a university, what does subversion look like if you work for the university? And what does it look like if you are a student? What does it look like if you, if your boss says you can't provide the service because the person is non-status? Right? What? How can you subvert that? I think that's that's one of the key aspects of it is to create that sort of cultural shift uh, away from just thinking that revo- like 
Resistance is what happens on the street when we are at demos, or when we are at rallies. I think it's something that happens at every aspect of our lives. In the two years since the G20, the austerity agenda has intensified in our city and across the world. Riots have been ongoing in Greece and revolts are spreading in Spain, while the Occupy movement across North America and mass student protest in Quebec was a manifestation of struggle closer to home. In Toronto, battles are around municipal services, provincial cuts, and more. The theme is the same across the world, governments promoting the interests of the few over the many. Yogi, Joanna, and Catherine are all working to build a resistance movement in very different ways, and provided us with a few examples, among many, of the creative, diverse, and radical ways they and others do this work. They're demonstrating how resistance can be ongoing. While the G20 was an important moment of resistance, it's important to remember that it's just one moment, and the struggle continues. Coherence is produced with support from Niche and the Faculty of Environmental Studies at York University. All three of the mobile bands featured on this episode were present in the streets on the weekend of the G20 in Toronto, including Toronto's Samba Squad and Rhythms of Resistance, and also Montreal's Chaotic Insurrection Ensemble. The rest of the music and sound design was done by Andrew Mark and Pence Productions. This episode of Coherence was produced by Sonia Kaloran McKibben, Andrew Mark, and Amanda DiBattista. Thanks to Joanna Adamiak, Yogi Acharya, and Catherine Adi Bell for speaking with us. In our next episode, we'll be working with guest producer Michelle Zabo to bring you a look at the relationship between food and social inequality. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes and send us feedback on the show. For details about this episode, check out our show notes at niche-canada.org backslash coherence. And coherence is spelled C-O-H-E-A-R-E-N-C-E. <laughs> that was much better. Andrew, can you use the last one, but please? Basically, I should say that, you know, Shirk has paid for my legal fees, so I should write a letter to them. <laughs> there were these, the bubble, the camera bubbles, and there was one, like, there were a few above, but there was always one right in front of each cell. Oh, wow. So that, you know, it's like, yes, this one is for you. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so that was... It's made out of, like, chain link fence? I sort of imagine. Mm. Like, plywood. I know. It wasn't chain link fence, but it was, like... Honestly, the best way that I can describe it, and this is going to be really, really weird, but... Um, you know at Ikea, you can get these drawers that are made of metal, like... <laughs> Sorry, this is ridiculous. Yep. <laughs> like IKEA, like metal furniture. Yes. That's like, yeah, that is what it felt like, wow. but gray. I wonder if IKEA has a whole. <laughs>